Welcome to the Psychedelic Spotlight Podcast. This is your host, Matthew. Today, I'm excited to present to you our conversation with Erwin Ambrose. Erwin is an advanced certified facilitator of the Resistance Toolkit and the community program coordinator at Lumos Transforms. She is a certified teaching artist and a certified race, equity, and healing justice facilitator. She has studied Viola Spolin's long-form organic improvisation, creative writing, addiction, and group dynamics. With a background in the creative and performing arts, Erwin believes in the healing power of story and is passionate about ethical storytelling, along with trauma-informed and resilience-oriented recovery, parenting, and social justice. So the primary topic of our conversation was psychedelics and recovery. How are psychedelics integrated into recovery? What are all the facets of recovery that we need to consider in order to get a more pervasively effective result? Who is experiencing what in the recovery landscape? And how do we help those in most need, but perhaps with not the most access to new or ancient therapies that could be of incredible use? Erwin is very candid with us in this discussion, and I appreciate that so much. I think we really do need to drill down to the awkwardness of these complex topics in order to get to a point where we can have a clear understanding, some clear, usable takeaway. Recovery under the 12-step program is a very particular methodology. It works so well for so many, and it doesn't reach everyone. With so many people suffering, and psychedelics being positioned as a way to transcend suffering for so many, it's important to understand where our suffering comes from, what it's influenced by, where it lives in the body, and how we can transcend it on every socioeconomic level in this country and beyond. Erwin, thank you so much for inviting us into your beautiful home today to speak about a great deal of of information, and recovery is going to be... Uh, kind of at the forefront of our discussion, and there's so many ways that you can take us in this conversation. So, where would you like to start? Ooh. <laughs> I'm like, Ooh, where do I drop in here? Yeah, drop That's in where such needed. Such a stew, right? It's like a bouillabaisse. Um, mm. Pull out a shrimp. I are there shrimp in bouillabaisse? I don't know. I don't know. Some kind of I don't shellfish. There's shellfish. allergies. Yeah, there yeah, are there's allergy allergies. Concerns. We don't want to eat bouillabaisse, right. probably. Um, so yeah. So I think, I think what's important. In regards to psychedelics and recovery, because that's probably the intersection, right? It's a good intersection. Yeah, and the work that I do, um, to give some context, I was introduced, I've been in recovery for 20 years, Mm -hmm. right? On a recovery journey, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I've been like clean and sober for 20 years because one, I don't like that term anymore. Uh Um, The term clean and sober? Yeah, I think it means the idea that you're clean or dirty. Gotcha. Right, doesn't feel inclusive to me. Yeah. At this part of my recovery journey, I'm very medically assisted treatment pro, harm reduction pro, very many roads to Rome of recovery, people defining recovery for themselves, and really looking at recovery from a place of, I have yet to meet someone who wants to stop doing something, but they can't. Mm. Who wants to stop doing something, but they're unable to do it. You've you've rarely met someone in that position. Yeah. Interesting. And so about five years ago, I, and I have been a fundamentalist in the recovery, the gold standard of recovery, the 12 steps before for a good 11 years, like big book thumper, incredibly rigid. So I feel like I have a healthy relationship to that program enough to be lovingly critical Mm. and to see really over the years where people fell out, where people were missing. Um, For some people that recovery journey is absolutely the one for them and they thrive and are are having huge arcs of personality changes and life changes and then there were some people like myself that were kind of like huh something's missing Hmm. 
my life is still crap. Like, and not just that, but my relationships are really still, still a source of so much suffering. And there's still such a deep dysregulation in my body, the discomfort, mm. call it anxiety, call it generalized anxiety disorder, call it CPTSD, call mm -hmm. it OCD, call it whatever the fuck you want, right? We're talking oh. about the body. Yeah, can you we can swear? You can say the F word. Okay. Yeah, the F word um, blessing. And so I came across a modality of, of, of um, I, it's stabilizing and resourcing called the Resilience Toolkit. And it's a embodied trauma-informed approach to stress and healing in the body that is deeply grounded in, well, trauma-informed principles, but also social justice. And when I was certified in that about four years ago, it, like I took all that learning, because I work with individuals and organizations for Lumos Transforms where I work, and I turned that lens towards recovery and realized, wow, like these are the missing pieces that really felt foundational for me to feel really recovered in my life. Mm. You know, the substance had been gone for a while. It wasn't even an issue. So then I started embarking on this real deep healing journey of like, what does it mean to really become whole, which recovery is about like kind of returning to ourselves. And something I came across was that recovery is incomplete with a dysregulated nervous system. Mm. So I can stop drinking, I can stop shopping, I can stop gambling, I can stop, well, can't, you know, there's certain things you can't stop, but if that dysregulation is still there, I'm just gonna seek something else, right? Mm. So learning that we have internal resources we can utilize in any moment under 15 to 30 seconds that help me negotiate and navigate stress states was like, whoa, I wish other people knew this. You know, especially in recovery, because so many people are suffering. Um, and then on top of that, there's behavior change theory, which I love because that model, are you familiar with it? The trans-theoretical model of behavior change? No, please elaborate. Yeah, it was designed for recovery for folks, alcoholics actually, and it is, um, it's been validated and studied and replicated, but it's this model that pe people are at different stages of recovery and, or sorry, in recovery, but people have a different relationship to behavior change based on their different the different stages that they're in. So some people prior to getting involved in yeah okay. So some people there's the early stage they're not ready they're probably in denial they're not they won't show up at meetings they won't show up in recovery they're mm. not even interested they're like I don't have a problem right. Mm. Then there's there's the folks who are like ah uh, things are not going so well I'm curious but I'm not ready mm -hmm. probably six months and then something happens and then they're like oh I'm ready now. And they might go to a few meetings, but they're not sure. Or they might try a couple of things, but they're not sure. And then people commit. And then there's maintenance and they do it for a while. And that's the honeymoon period, right? Usually about six months to a year. And then built into this model, which I love, 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 is a return. I call it a return back to another stage. We call it relapse and recovery, right? But it, it is built into this model that it's not if, but when you'll return. And so, there's so much compassion in that and understanding that sometimes people have five to seven returns in them before it's able to stick and you can mm -hmm. get to longer term maintenance. Mm -hmm. And return may look like using the substance again. It may look like using it for a day. It may look like just thinking about it a lot. It may look like changing your recovery program. Right? There's different ways to look at that. And there were four different ways that people sometimes make commitments to themselves that I've started working with people in. It's like one, some people can make a promise to themselves and others and be fine. And they usually don't show up in recovery groups because they don't need anyone else. I know some of those people. 
I don't understand them. They're a different species. They're mm -hmm. like, oh, I OD'd on crack one night. That was a bad idea. I'm not going to use any drugs or drink for another 20 years. Mm -hmm. I'm good, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who are those people? Mm -hmm. They're out there. Um, we don't hear those stories very much in recovery because they don't need to, right? Yeah. Then there's obligers like myself. This is based on Gretchen Rubin's book, The Four Tendencies, but it's like obligers are really good at external accountability. I'll meet your commitment to you, come hell or high water, but to myself, fuck off, right? Like no way. Those people do really well in recovery groups because that external accountability is, that's why meeting makers make it, which is a term when I was a fundamentalist, like pissed me off so much. So I'm like, no, it's the program, right? It's mm. the steps. Mm -hmm. Then I realized, no, some people actually do really well just being in a community. And that's beautiful. And yeah. why would I want to take that away from anyone, right? And then there's people, and these are the two groups that I find don't do well in recovery. They're questioners. They have to question everything before they are able to make that commitment to themselves. Mm -hmm. You're not meant to question the gold standard of recovery, okay. right? Take the cotton out of your mouth. No, take the cotton out of your ears, put it in your mouth. Some old school stuff, right? So they fall through the cracks, and then unless they have a really nuanced, special, you know, sponsor, and then there's the rebels, and rebels have to do it their own way. They're not going to follow. They're not going to follow anything. They have to make it their own, and you're definitely not in encouraged or, you know, to make recovery your own. Mm -hmm. At least the steps, as okay. we know, if we're talking about that model. Yeah. So they fall through the cracks. So what I found is I was looking around in those rooms and those spaces. I was like, people are falling through the cracks, and they're thinking it's their fault. They're blaming themselves when it's the model that's not supporting them. Are there other models out there? And then I looked at mine and I was like, wow, like if people really understood dysregulation of the nervous system and the body as being driving the thinking, driving the lens of the world, and they could go from that approach, I feel like there's so much more agency and efficacy to handle triggers or you can call them trailheads, right? Like ways to learn more about yourself if you're in a slip or a relapse or a return. And so the question I asked myself a lot was, how can I normalize, how can we more normalize a return or a relapse without encouraging it? Mm. Because the thing with recovery is we know people can die, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a lot on the line with a slip or a relapse. Sure. Right? And that's a scary thing. So I don't have the answers, but I do think psychedelics, if we're going to go in that direction, um, have a lot of potential. Alcoholics Anonymous, as well as most modes of psychology and healing, are cognitive, top-down approaches. That only works so well, and with so a certain amount, a certain group of people, I would say, right? Mm -hmm. And if we look at biology, actually bottom-up, if it changes my thinking, I'm able to actually think clearer and make better decisions if I understand my biology, how I'm responding to stress in my life. So but not, could, not everyone will have the, the inclination to go into the science side of it right. either. They might be more inclined to go into the faith or spiritual or community aspect of support, right? So, right. so we're, we're talking again about you're seeing the entire apparatus where it's lacking mm -hmm. and where people aren't being served to the greatest potential of, of, of results, right? Yeah. So um, you started looking outwards for other options and you came up with, you discovered another system, another yes. modality. Yes. Yeah. And so I'm helping people now. I created the toolkit for recovery, which aligns this body-based approach with a trauma-informed awareness and lens 
and deeply grounded in awareness of people's ecology too. And I feel like it can support any mode of recovery you're mm. in, whether it be abstinence or harm reduction or wherever you are in your recovery journey. I've had people show up to the workshop and be like, I don't know why I signed up for this. And then they find out as we start talking that I can't stop something, but you know, that I want to, but I can't. Um, a woman was reading romance novels and we scoff at that. But if you know, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about his compulsion to buy, I think it's, it's like um, classical CDs, mm. right? To the point mm. of like putting his family's finances in jeopardy. Wow. Some, and leaving a woman in labor to go by. Like, so these compulsive behaviors, yeah. he talks about addiction being a lack of connection. So these compulsive behaviors, and I think of it as a lack of connection to yourself first and foremost, like being able to know what's going on in your physiology so you can work with it. Because okay. the way I respond to stress is different than the way you do. And the compulsive behavior would indicate that disconnect? Yeah. Uh -huh. So I'm compulsively seeking something to regulate a dysregulated nervous system. Okay. So a dysregulated NARM, the neuroaffective relational model that I really like for addiction as well and recovery, talks about from childhood trauma, which we can ascertain and validate from the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, that trauma is childhood trauma is directly linked to addiction. Yeah. Right? So in the rooms, I, I started to find it very odd, too, that people are like, I don't know why I'm an addict. And, you know, it doesn't have to do with my family. And I'm like, ah, uh, probably has to do with something in your childhood or young adulthood. But the carrying capacity for the formal program just doesn't allow for those kind of yeah. tributary explorations. Yes. Yeah. No, it doesn't. It actually actively discourages against seeking, or at least in the fundamentalist group I was in, was like, you don't need therapy. You don't need medication. You just need to do the steps harder. Yeah. And with someone better, maybe, mm -hmm. right? Like, and I was working with the Big Book Awakenings. If anyone knows that, it's sort of a really intense way of taking every line into a question. Mm -hmm. And working with people like Mark Houston and Joe Hawk and some of these famous older people. But like, the rigidity of that, yeah, right? Like, yeah. I don't know what you need. Right. And I don't know what tools you need, actually, to settle a dysregulated nervous system. So NARM says, the neuroaffective relational model says, from childhood trauma, we have complex PTSD is where there's a series of, you're like, it's chronic dysregulation, a difficulty ascertaining whether my body is safe or not. And so that creates a lot of like dysregulation that we seek to regulate at any cost biologically, mm. even if the cost is our life. So I'll smoke that cigarette for those five minutes of mm. knowing it's gonna kill me I will take that whiskey shot knowing what could happen because I just need a break, mm -hmm. right? I just need settling of this. And what if you could settle that with other things? Mm -hmm. So you've come to understand this though. You, the information, you've sought it out. It makes sense to you. You can incorporate it into your mind, into your imagination. And not everybody can experience and process information the same way. So you're finding a way to practically share, to structure and educate. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think the combination of all of it, like I don't think I'm the panacea, uh -huh. right? I don't think the 12 steps is the panacea. I yeah. think there's a combination of both. I think it's mind and body, right? But right. we've left out the body so much. But yeah, it's like teaching people these small little practices, little bit over time, yields these huge sustainable results. And what's hard for people, and we talked about this you know, when we first spoke was like, our culture loves the big breakthrough 
model of healing. It loves, especially the group breakthrough model of healing, emotional catharsis, like retreat model, rehabilitation, mm -hmm. psychedelics, right? And I told you I, in 2015 was, before I met the model I work with now was like, I heard of ayahuasca and it was 10 years of therapy and two nights. And I just was going through a very terrifying divorce and I was feeling so broken inside and I'd been sober 11 years, clean and sober 11 mm. years and so rigid in that program. And mm -hmm. man, I could talk to a, hundreds of people about my belief in God that would keep me sober. And then when the shit hit the fan and I'd done the steps every eight or nine times with better and better sponsors. Mm. When the rug got pulled out of me, I realized I don't believe in God. That's not my God. Judeo-Christian patriarchal terms are not my terms. This is not my model. And I tried ayahuasca, right? I was like, yeah, I want the big cathartic experience. I want to be get her done. <laughs> and the potential of psychedelics to rewire the brain is huge, right? Huge. But what we find and what you and I spoke about, the ability to take that state change, the big peak experience state change, yeah. and translate, build the bridge to everyday trait change, yeah very difficult to do. It's being done better in the newer kind of wave of psychedelic therapeutic models with like Johns Hopkins and these places really holding people's hands for integration. But generally, I think people are looking at this model in recovery and going, yeah, like, and I heard people in the class I was in, the psychedelics re-envisioned at Antioch with Dr. David Tripp, that I hope you get to interview. Mm -hmm. A little plug for you, Mr. Tripp. <laughs> um, was a lot of recovery folks were like, whoa, kind of a, a like I want you, but I don't, you mm. know, it was like sure. the potential for healing is great, but the yeah. potential for harm is also great. Mm. And I found when I broke my clean and sober title at 11 years by doing ayahuasca, it's like, there's something called the abstinence violation effect, which mm. is also interesting wow. in harm reduction, that if you're so abstinent from something and yeah. th that rigidity, the second you do it, you go the fuck it's is what oh, I call it, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You can have it with alcohol, with carbs. Anyone doing like the low yeah, carb sure. knows, right? The floodgates are open. Yeah, and I'm not per, you know, promoting moderation with substances that will kill you, like at all. But, and I don't have all the answers, but these, these are the questions I live in daily and wonder and wanna help more people sure. understand that there are tools and the problem with trying to sell a program like mine is it's not emotional catharsis. It's the opposite. It's like, don't over flood your system with too much sensation because that's re-traumatizing. Let's do little bits at a time and really get curious about what you need because it's different than what I need in any moment with any state you're in, right? If you're in a nervous system stress state, what you need in that moment might be butterfly hug, it might be breath work, it, I probably just knocked my mic there, right? <laughs> um, might be breath work, it might be meditation, it might be movement, it might be running, I don't know, yeah. right? But like working individually with people to help them find out what's gonna work for them, getting them real curious before they wanna do, use something or compulsive behavior, where do you want, what state are you in? What do you think the thing is gonna do for you? Where's it gonna take you, right? We look at maps of the nervous system and then you get to be super selective. Well, I want to wake up, right? My tweaker friends, I don't even like that term. My, my meth addicted friends sure. in recovery, they're always talking about, I want to wake up. I want to feel alive. I want mm. to like feel sharp and alive because they're probably stuck in a more of a, it's actually a really high stress state called freeze. 
that's a numb shutdown state, protective, but in short term, long term, very hard to sustain. Their body is biologically seeking to wake up, to come out of it, to drop into the fight flight of activation. So they love uppers, right? I'm someone who lives in hypervigilance, that anxiety, that place. Yeah. I want the edge to be taken off. Yeah. I want alcohol, I right. want downers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There are tools that can wake you up if you're in that state. And there, if you're in a free state, it's generally not good to meditate because that could exacerbate the free state. So getting people to learn, oh, I need to look out. I need to move. I need to like pay attention. But if I'm in a super activated state, I need to actually activate to be able to sit. So there's the relaxation response to healing and there's the arousal response to healing. And our culture has definitely overemphasized relaxation response without the activation or the arousal. Is the relaxation response part of the 12-step program? I'd say the meditation, yeah. right? The emphasis on meditation, which yeah. very few people can do, uh -huh. especially if you're highly traumatized. Sure. I have a lot of caveats about mindfulness meditation also being the panacea for everything, right? It's good for some folks in some states. Yeah. But there's a lot of different ways to get your body and your mind closer to what's called the social engagement system, which is a deep presence to it where I can connect to me and you and I can regulate. Like I have all my feelings, it's very present to everything that's going on, but I got this, right? People often confuse that state with a free state, which is a shutdown numb. Mm. And a lot of spiritual bypassing happens that way, I've mm. noticed. And in the community of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've seen that a lot too. Mm -hmm. Like, don't get angry, don't have feelings, you're not, you know, it, that, that, it's that like, I'm sort of unaffected by things means I'm healed. Mm. Where I feel like actually being able to be affected by everything, but not be taken out by it, is more wholeness to me. Right? I want to feel grief. I want to feel anger. I want to feel joy and sadness, you know? So I think some people who are familiar with the history of AA know that LSD was at one point in time a consideration to be an integral component of, yeah. of the, the healing process. Yes. Can you speak to that a little bit? Have yeah. you researched that and oh, dug yeah, into yeah, it yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I've we, researched all of a lot of Bill W.'s strategies. Strategies, histories, and hopes and dreams. Yep. And what we're getting at really is, is the exploration of the body, yeah. of the physiology, of the nature of trauma, of, mm -hmm. of, of why these habituated patterns develop and stick and how they can be transcended, right? Yeah. Well, I know from, from what I've read at least, and I could be wrong, obviously, and quite often am, that's okay. <laughs> but Bill W. was still suffering from depression you know, and so that's a free state. That's a pretty high stress state. Mm. So, um, and he was also, I know, very curious about how to help. He knew people were going to fall through the cracks of Alcoholics Anonymous, that that way of approaching a spiritual experience was not going to resonate with everyone. Yeah. And so I know part of part and parcel of his LSD experimentation was for his own depression, but also to feel like, how can we create a spiritual experience, a mystical experience for people that will help them stay and want to be sober? Okay knowing the Judeo-Christian model wasn't gonna work for everyone. Um, and what I find really interesting and what we know about psychedelics is they create a mystical experience, the awe, right? That awe and wonder that we can find in nature or with psychedelics, that that can be such a deeply transformative, exp uh, like changing experience in and of itself. But mm. again, if it's not brought into daily life, 
Um, you know, he was on Belladonna when he had his like big mm -hmm. like epiphany, right? He was he was on a substance. So we see that that is part and parcel of like possibly a recovery journey. Um, but what I find really interesting when I was learning, because I've struggled with the God concept a lot. Yeah. It doesn't resonate with me. Mm -hmm. um, and also what kind of, if we're going with a disease model, what kind of disease do we treat with faith? If we're really looking at like, this is a medical model, right? Which I don't agree with. Um, but what I do think is interesting, when I started really looking at how to work with the nervous system, when I started exploring my own sense of settling and relaxation, what did that feel like? It felt like faith. Mm. The closer I got to my social engagement system, and if you've been jacked up in hypervigilance for a long time, it takes a while and it's very disorienting and can feel very unsafe to leave that state at first. So it's not a sexy and glamorous ride that you'd want it to be. Mm. So coming out of that was very disorienting, right? And the ride wasn't as fluid as I wanted it to be. And so coming into more of social engagement, though, I realized the glimmers I would make into it we're like, whoa, like this must be what people feel when they feel faith. Uh, Everything's gonna be okay. I'm okay. There's time for everything. My thinking is spacious. I'm like, I care about you and I care about my neighbor. And I care about long term and I'm creative and I'm like problem solving. And that's a state I was never in because I was so, you know, into my hypervigilance yeah, of like, survival. where's the danger, where's the danger from my childhood, right? Yeah. Um, and then I was like, oh, that's faith. That might be what, there's a lot of physical things that happen in some religions where you stand up, you sit down, you do like things like you move the body in certain yeah. ways. I'm like, oh, they're incredible. And if we get really nerdy about it, it's about the vagus nerve and polyvagal theory, which is the science behind this giant wandering nerve in the body that's responsible for all these things. And so you can innervate the vagus nerve in different ways, knowing what you need and when. Sometimes you need gentle rocking. Sometimes you need touch. Sometimes you need to go inside. Sometimes you go out, right? So this is like, how do we figure this out? Um, there's no one size fits all. And so what I find is that um, I was talking with my friend who's very still rigid in that program, my, my, my bestie. And she's always talking about how do I get my sponsees to go to God, to go to God, to go to God with everything, right? That's what we're told in the program. Like that's how you you give your will third step, right? I give it over to God, I give it over to God. And I was like, that's so funny because I actually, when I'm working with my clients and my folks, how do I get them to keep practicing the tools so they get closer to this sense of I'm okay, mm -hmm. where my body's functioning, I can rest, I can sleep, I have immunity, right? We're both trying to do the same thing. She's coming at it from a theoretical standpoint, this sort of like, you know, top down, like God. I'm like using the body to get to the same place. Also, if you have people's ecology, this piece, like if I'm suffering with stuff in my personal ecology, if I'm a person of color in this country and that's part in chronic poverty, I can go to a rehab. I can have a different state in that rehab. When I come back, I'm in my same ecology, mm -hmm. right? If that doesn't yeah. change, the reason I'm so disorganized and discomfort, dysregulated, that's not going to change. And if I'm only relying on something external like a sponsor or a meeting or a substance, right? I love teaching people there's things in your body that can actually work. They're not gonna be as strong as a narcotic or a shot of whiskey or a shot of heroin or that, absolutely. But if you practice it daily over time, it will get there. And there's a tool I use called the therapeutic tremor, which is very little understood, but it's probably the most powerful tool in the toolkit. 
and it has the power to knock you out of hypervigilance and to really quickly reset the nervous system and it's biological, it's in all of us. As mammals, we're meant to shake and tremor and vibrate tension out. How are people discovering the resilience toolkit? That's a great question. Um, I just talk about it on my Instagram site, Yeah. pretty much. The, my work, Loomis Transforms, encourages me to make little videos that I hate doing, but like have to. Yeah. Um, I try to go on, I'm working with an app right now called New Life that just came out for recovery that yeah. looks like I can do individual work there and also work with, do the workshop. I have a three-part workshop. Um, but other than that, it's really hard. It's really hard because I'm not a licensed clinician. You know, I can't go into some of the recovery spaces and yeah. rehabilitation centers because mm -hmm. I'm not licensed. Um, what I do is very therapeutic, and, but it's really simple too. It's really basic about biology. It's not, I'm not healing trauma. I'm helping people resource and stabilize so they can do deeper healing with someone else with a modality that speaks to them. It might be talk therapy, it might be EMDR, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be equestrian shit, whatever. <laughs> Could be art making, could be psychedelics. Yeah. Right? But I think if people are more stabilized and resourced before they do psychedelics, if you're going for a big, a big peak experience healing modality, you're gonna have more capacity to integrate that if you know how to regulate before. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm passionate about. That's what I do. I help people stabilize and resource because most people come to recovery in chaos and crisis. Sure. Well, let me ask you a far out question that kind of ties to that idea. Not maybe knowing entirely why we are going through the experience of what we've deemed a human being on what we call a planet. Yeah. Is it possible that some of us have chosen the experience of addiction in order to work through some kind of karmic debt mm. or create some kind? Because, you know, when you talk about um, the how unfathomable it is the 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 suffering that some people endure as compared to maybe just somebody else's life down the same street or whatever you know it's just yeah like why did we choose that it's it, it, how how did it happen that way and then sometimes you have to rationalize about what's going on in your own life and you, you know something i hear a lot is that any kind of suffering or hardship that i've endured i've chosen for myself yeah. right we yeah. hear that right yeah. so yeah. Um, I, yeah. you know, it's just something that, 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 that comes to mind, you know, because you would think no one would choose that for themselves. No one would yeah. choose to have the things that we call trauma, like occur with, through or to them. Right. Yeah. And then the resultant coping mechanisms or habituated behaviors that yeah. can spring from that, from a biological origin. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, I'll say I grew up, I sometimes say, I joke that I'm a recovered new age metaphysicist, right? Like I grew up with my mom being very into tarot and astrology and dream interpretation and seances and seeing men being channeled through a woman who were 800 years old from the Pleiades, right? Like that was my religious, up, spiritual upbringing. A, inherent in that is is what I heard a lot, like if I had a stomach ache, what, what is it you don't, like, what is it you don't want to feel? Earache, what is it you don't want to hear? And everything was, yeah. you chose this, you chose this. And so I heard that a lot too. And I think there's some of that in AA, right? In that part of the process of like, you play a part in all of your circumstances. And I get that to a degree. 
I also think there, there's a bit of spiritual bypassing in that, right? You can manifest and, and, and you chose this too, right? So what lesson do you have to learn from everything? What is mm -hmm. the lesson to learn? You must have chosen this on some part. Mm -hmm. I think that's problematic in some ways, especially if we're talking about social justice, because do people choose racism? Or do people choose to be born how they're born, right. where they're born, looking how yeah. they're looking, whatever? Right. And and so can we? So and I'm I love there's a Rawls's theory of justice talks about the original position under the veil of ignorance of this idea that if we all took away, if we didn't know society's hierarchy, would we choose the society we're in? Right. Absolutely not. Obviously. If we didn't know society, like if I didn't know I was going to be a white person in America, would I? support racism, racialized capitalism, right? If I didn't, if I didn't know I wasn't going to be born into, okay, okay. right? It's, it's a tough concept. I've been struggling with it myself. But the idea is that we wouldn't, like, I struggle with the notion that people choose addiction to learn. I do think that I believe everybody is impacted by trauma on some level. Not to make it ubiquitous and the cause for everything, but I believe inherent in the human condition are traumatic experiences because inherently, well, mostly in, I'd say, our Western dominant culture because we aren't taught to integrate traumatic experiences so they're not trauma stuck bracing in the body and create that dysregulation. Mm. Other cultures, they have dancing, drumming, humming, singing, ways of moving together and being in community, spiritual practices, qigong, tai chi, right? There's other ways, there's other, like the... Kalahari um, Bushmen, right? That they have, they're called the keepers of the shake. It's that kind of idea mm. that we are meant to actually move through stressful events. Mm. Our culture is like, do not have uncontrollable movement, right? Like repress, repress, repress. That creates that dysregulation. Where we seek to, to regulate, I think it's fascinating. Some of us chose substances. Other people choose romance novels. Some people find, right, sex or, or shopping or gam, right? And I think, like, I used to be of the ilk that, like, alcoholism is a very specific disease. It's different than drug addiction. We should never mix the two. And I was very rigid and fundamentalist about that. Now I'm like, I don't give a fuck what it is, right? Like, we're all suffering on some level, everyone. There's nothing special about me because I chose alcohol. It was just the vehicle that worked for me and eventually became my downfall. So I find like, do we choose to suffer? Is that part of the human condition? And is that bypassing to say I chose this to learn or is that making sense of it? I do find people who have been to hell and back to be my people, <laughs> you know? But I also have yet to meet someone who hasn't suffered, who isn't suffering, or who doesn't experience confounding dysregulation and seek something and have been taught mostly by parents and everyone else, seek an external resource. We're shown that alcohol is this great social thing. Yeah. It is a toxic fucking drug. Mm -hmm. It is one of the most toxic. So looking at like culture, you know, so I don't know if I answered the question or I just rambled on, but. Well, I think it just kind of all boils back to the fact that what can we ex what can we really expect of ourselves looking at what we've done so far how how great of an exponential leap are we able to make in terms yes. of like remedying where we haven't lived to our potential yeah. so that others can live to their potential yes. like, you know, because 
in the very most basic level, when you look at somebody who is suffering so intensely from addiction in particular, it's hard to feel like that's okay. Yes. You know? And yes. it's hard yes. not to wonder what might have been different in that yeah. organism's experience yes. of life that could have set them up to have an experience that they would raise their hand and say, this is less painful than what I've yeah. been through. I mean, I, it's like working with the unhoused. It's like my older brother is a, you know, recurring, relapsing drug addict. And watching him go through life that way is so painful. Mm -hmm. And he also has no interest in what I teach. Doesn't mm -hmm. think trauma has anything to do with what he's experiencing, why he keeps returning to drugs. Um, like I said, my partner has no interest and suffers. And just to see, I feel like people who are in recovery and who work with people too are, want to give back in that way, it's heartbreaking Sisyphean work, right? You're like always pushing the boulder up the hill and it feels like it falls down at yeah. night. And that's where I go, yeah, because we're catching the babies as they come down the river, right? We're like catching the babies. And this is where I get, I go to my social justice piece, ecology. I'm like, why, why don't we go up to the river, the mouth of the river and go, why are the babies being thrown in, right? Chronic poverty, racial capitalism creates a lot of dysregulation. Child abuse, it creates child abuse. Um, when I worked in probations and prison, you know, in the probation camps, in the prisons with men experiencing incarceration, the youth, the stories of childhood chronic poverty, yeah. number one. Yeah. I want to make a jump from that to the mystical again. Yeah. And I'd just like for you to tell me what you think are mystical experiences that mm. you encounter on a daily basis. Oh, looking at my daughter, the fact that she's alive and breathing and eating and like that this person grew in my body mm. still you know I struggle with God but I'm like if there's any like I can't argue with that like how the fuck did that happen it's it's impossible not to be reverential about that right? mystery right and and it's not an experience I, I th think everyone needs to have by any means as we know there's some people that are real crap at it but like that fills me with awe on a daily basis. Um, the fact that I woke up alcohol-free today, there's awe in that too to me because of the way I drink, the way I, you know, can imbibe those substances. It's like, I didn't and I feel good. Like, that's kind of mystical for me. Um, nature, always, and we know that's one of the biggest. And psychedelics can, you know. Um, MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, ayahuasca, right? They are known to produce those deep mystical experiences. But then we have to look at like, what's the definition of a mystical experience? Yeah, I just wanted to hear what it was like for you yeah. on a daily, without any kind of infusion or ingestion or yeah. altering of what you've got, you know? And what's the baseline? I and mean, we're right. always changing, right? But, right? but just on its own. Yeah, nature, love, feeling yeah. love. Yeah. I think too, and this is what I used to say too, I couldn't, I would find God, for lack of a better word in this context, when I would go into a prison and I'd have men come in self-selecting, so a very different type of, whoops, inmate, or person experiencing incarceration, and these men would say, it's wild, the wind just came up. Yeah. These men would come in and be from very different ethnicities and affiliations and be looking at each other like, 
the fuck are you doing here? What am I doing here? You know, and like have absolute othering happening, mm -hmm. like you are other. And we start with a couple of rounds of like, tell a story about your favorite childhood toy. Hmm. Tell a story about someone who had your back growing up, you know, mm -hmm. or like, what does it feel like to trust someone? And those can be problematic, obviously, for not every prompt is great for everyone. But just to say that, like, after a couple of rounds, to feel everyone soften and to see them as brother, not other. It's a pretty mystical experience. And that happening, I did that for 10 years at work. Like, that always felt like, I was like, oh, there's something to this. There's something really powerful going on here. And it's not of me. It's, beyond, it's bigger than me bigger than all of us you know and it's so moving and so powerful and really beautiful thank you for taking the time to speak yeah about all of these complexities um, I think in a way and and I think by endeavoring to have the conversations we can hope that we're always creating a landscape where more communication can happen, right? Yes. And, 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 and like you just alluded to, in those groups where the communication was openly shared, it does change the dynamic, yes. right? It changes yes. what's possible. Yes, and that we're all different. Like I love that we have different experiences and different ways to recovery and different journeys and different modalities that resonate and there's no one size fits all to anything. The Resilience Toolkit for recovery. For recovery. Yes. Can be found. Right now it's on hiatus, but check, check, look out for it at Lumos Transforms. We're talking about re reinvesting in it. Um, but right now I think I'm going to be, I not I think, I will be offering it at New Life. Kay. It's a recovery app, so I'll be doing online workshops there and also working with individual clients through there. But you can also just reach out to me at Lumos and I can work individually with folks that way as well. All right. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. That was so fun. I love talking about this shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite thing. So that's my conversation with Erwin Ambrose. So happy to have a chance to speak with her. Interesting to think about the body in recovery. If you are considering recovery or you are in recovery, if you're struggling with your recovery, if you are in the throes of addiction, I hope that you found something in this show. The body is involved in the process of addiction. The body is involved in the process of confronting and transcending our trauma. And fortunately, there are people out there like Erwin who are doing the research, who are connecting the dots, who are putting the thought and time into learning about how to work with our body and our spirit in the process of going through a recovery system like the 12 steps, like Alcoholics Anonymous, or uh, you know other methodologies that people are utilizing to live the best lives they possibly can so we appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode very soon global track solutions inc and psychedelic spotlight does not in any way encourage or condone the use purchase sale or transfer of any illegal substances nor do we encourage or condone partaking in any unlawful activities we support a harm reduction approach for the purpose of education and promoting individual and public safety. If you are choosing to use psychedelic substances, please do so responsibly.